set in the Rocky Mountains in the not-too-distant future. Ghost Snatchers is a novel by James LaFond about an army of SJWs and their legions of color descending upon the last remaining redoubt of heritage Americans using Afghanistan war tactics. Originally scheduled to talk about his book, James joins us this evening just as the formula of lockdowns and riots perfected in 2020 is set to reignite as the nation braces for the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. And yet another apparent excessive use of force was on display in Minneapolis with the shooting of Dante Wright. As an advisor to the persecuted and hated minority that is the pale-faced man, our most consistently popular guest offers his take on the new vaccine passports and the Baltimoreification of the American city going forward. Well, I'm not a crook. I burn everything I've got. I did not trade arms for Hello, welcome to the myth of the 20th century. We have a uh, packed full house, uh, hopefully not on fire uh, in the near future. And we're joined by a very special guest, uh, James LaFond. But this being the uh, the hour of the eternal uh, urbanite, uh, we thought we'd bring you a, a late breaking uh, news update from the uh, the shattered uh, hellscape known as the Upper Midwest. Uh, I know we've got some friends up there. Uh, I hope they're doing okay. And uh, we, we'd like to update you on the, the latest happening. It turns out everything that Sam Hyde says comes to fruition. Uh, actually, females cannot even the left from the right hand. Uh, actually, like, there's only two seasons, COVID and riots. Uh, actually, Little Caesars is always on time, but what they deliver could be a rain of hellfire or the tasty hot and ready, depending so somebody what, somebody got shot and it like was the wrong, wrong person. Eternal yeah. uh, twenty twenty for the rest of our well, lives. The uh, the mystery meat hominid that was gunned down. <laughs> he, he looks like he's at least seventy percent white. So <laughs> I saw that too. I thought the guy was white. <laughs> he just looks like like a tan white guy with curly hair. Fuck, they're mad about. Eat here, Buster. You better slow right the heck down. He is he is at I'm most he is at most 20% bantu, but they're, they're acting like it was right. like British colonialism all over again. It's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's for some context, Dang. a a fat lesbian cop who's 48 years old <laughs> mag dumped an entire Glock into this gentleman and screamed taser at him. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't quite get what was going on. But the guy drove away, didn't he? You're supposed to give uh, give all your partners a 
the time to get clear of the guy, which is why her, uh, her partner or at least the other guy on the call leaps to the side there, which coincidentally uh, avoided him from getting a nice hole in his side. Uh, <laughs> he did like a Saturday Night Fever move. He just like shunted his hips real quick and then she unloaded. Well, yeah, when like when the female cops start yelling, that's when you know you just just run the fuck away. That's when mm. you know you're about to be genocided. You know, it doesn't. Like, it doesn't matter if it's like you know, hey, buddy, like whatever the fuck. It's like no, do do not complain. Like at that point, it's a you or them situation. When the lady cop starts yelling, somebody's gonna die. You just you just gotta make a break for it. So James, what do you think of all this? And this this took place in a Little Caesars. <laughs> Wow. No, this took place on the street. So it was at least in the riot uh, impact zone. I, I was watching the uh, the live stream. I think it's still still going on. Actually, I have it paused in the background. But you know, all your all your greatest hits: the Little Caesars, the AutoZone, Foot Locker. Yeah, they all got hit. I, in 2016, uh, a big buck tried to walk up behind me while I was waiting for the bus on Northern Parkway in Glen Oak. And uh, I heard him behind me. He was like 6'4", 240, about 27 years old. And I put my back to the light pole because uh, I thought he was coming up behind me with bad intentions. He was insulted by this. He walked out into the middle of Northern Parkway, walked down the median, made a phone call. I was afraid the whole Zulu Impy was going to come down on me within five minutes. But instead, by the time he was three blocks down the road, a blonde female cop, Baltimore City cop, buzzed by me, did a U-turn, pulled up at the head of the bus stop 30 yards away. I'm standing at the back of the bus stop where it actually pulls over with the door on the corner. And she puts her hand on her gun and she starts screaming at me. And um, just so I know what happened. He didn't call reinforcements. Well, he did call reinforcements. He called his, uh, the allies, the pigs. So she's screaming at me and she's demanding that I say something back to her. But I got two hernias and I know if I yell, I'm going to possibly have to get surgery. And she's far enough away that if she empties her clip at me, then the surgery might not be as bad as getting my nuts shoved back into my abdomen. So I just talked to her calmly, and every time I calmly answered her at a conversational tone, which she would have been able to hear if her ears weren't ringing with stress, she would scream at me again and grip her gun harder. And uh, this family of black people were on the porch, and then a my savior rolled up. He was about a 30-year-old African-American cop. He gets out of his car. He puts his hands on her shoulders, whispers in her ear. She stops screaming. She lets go of her gun. He leads her up onto the porch. This gives me time to take my knife and drop it into my backpack, which means I'm going to be disarmed if they don't arrest me on the rest of the way through you know, my eight-mile safari to get to work my $10.25 an hour night job. So um, I don't hear what he says, but there's a 16-year-old kid there that I remembered like when he was eight when I started taking the bus there, and he was now working. And he had just gotten off the bus from work, and he was hanging out with his sister and his parents on the porch. It was an actual intact family. And a 16-year-old kid said, that's our white man. And then uh, the black cop uh, 
basically ushered Karen back down to the street, made sure she got into her car, and they pulled off, and he never said anything to me. So uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was it. I, I mean, I was like, this dumb bitch is going to shoot me. <laughs> so, so it was just... Uh, you know, I, I really think that in my perfect fantasy would be maybe 300 Mohawk warriors come forward in a time machine and they like murder every cop in every American city, city by city. And they rape all the bitch lesbian cops and they scalp them and they just move on to another city. I mean, I actually wrote that novel. It's called Thunderbird. I think we sold like 12 copies of it. I even had, I even had one of the lesbian, I even had one of the lesbian cops. One of the Indians actually punched the teeth out of the front of her mouth so that he could use it for, for a spare orifice, you know? So it, it was, I can't believe when actually got through it. You know, it was like the most disgustingly violent. It was like a hundred pages of, of rape and murder and combat. Uh, so that's actually where my fantasy life has lived. You know, I, I wake up every morning and I run three scenarios about killing cops through my mind. And then I go about my day, you know, so, so that's it. So uh, hopefully in Minneapolis, the, uh, the ideal outcome is the, the 140 pound pig who had to kneel on the big buck Bantu's neck. Hopefully he gets manslaughter which means he will still go to prison and 30 cities will still burn. So that's what I'm hoping for. So it looks like they've already got the icing on the cake with his dumb bitch. So I'm feeling pretty good. Thanks for telling me about that. So, so Yeah, supposedly the, uh, the closing argument will be on month, next Monday for the, uh, the Chauvin ordeal. So <laughs> next, next week is going to be, I think it's going to be real spicy one way or another. James, uh, could you please, I, I know it's kind of an obvious question, but could you please give your expert anthropological take on the female variety of pig? Uh, this, uh, uh, five days ago, I got into Baltimore. I actually spent four days in Baltimore. One of your listeners put me up for four days and even gave me a computer because my main computer fried. So that was very nice. One day I went out for a walk to meet a friend of mine, uh, a mile up the road and, um, a, uh, a pumper truck, uh, piloted by Bantu firemen were rumbling out Hartford road. And they pulled over in front of what used to be a 7-Eleven before it got knocked out of business. And it's now like a Chinese bodega. And they started, they blocked all the traffic. They started unreeling the fire hose out. Then the three men started arguing about whether or not they were at the right address. So then uh, the HNC, he got on the phone to the dispatcher and started arguing with this person about whether or not they were at the right address. By this time, I have walked by them, and I could smell that the fire is further up the road. By the time I got up the road to the Peter Pan restaurant where the grease fire was in the kitchen, uh, six, it was five pumper trucks, two other trucks, and a hook and ladder had already passed me. And most of them just went back to their stations and the hook and ladder and one of the pumper trucks pulls up to this place where the employees already put out the fire. The hook and ladder truck is also navigated by the back end by a mulatto, the front end by a white guy. And in the street, their commander is a big Bantu. The mulatto and the Bantu get in an argument. So the, uh, 
uh, the white guy from the front of the hook and ladder decides that the mulatto is correct and they move on. Well, uh, six Baltimore City police officers have now set up a cordon around this and one of them is about five feet tall. I'd say 105 pounds. She's got a nice ass for a skinny check. I couldn't tell if she had a rack at all because of this bucket like, uh, you know, bulletproof vest she had on. And she could barely look over the roof of her car at the traffic that she was stopping. And I just stopped and I checked her out, tried to figure out if she had nice tits, couldn't determine it. And she kind of looked at me and shivered. And I just kept on going and I went to the bar. I held the door open for an old lady and I went in. And that's what female Baltimore City cops do. They, they usually put them in a blocking position with their automobile when, uh, you know, the, the men sort shit out. And if the female cop uh, ever gets involved in anything, it's usually a situation where there's a female arrest. Um, and she's the one that's got to pat him down or it's a male arrest and the guys think that maybe a female voice might be able to calm this guy down and they won't have to beat the shit out of him. So it's like the three purposes that they have other than blowing male cops and their cruisers. The only three purposes that female cops have is they, they calm down crackheads who have a mommy complex while the four goons standing around them are waiting to beat him up. If he doesn't calm down or they're in a blocking position to block traffic, um, or they're, uh, um, they're patting down a female suspect or arrestee. That, that's it. That's all they do. Yeah. Is this a purely modern thing? I mean, or are there any historical? Because you're pretty thoroughly versed in history. It started in the early 80s. The female cops started in the early 80s, and I talked to some cops about it. It was a joke then. It's it's a bad joke now. And I think it's good. I think we should have nothing but female cops. I mean, I would be I would be perfectly thrilled with that. I like being in Portland. I was in Portland for a couple of months, and there was, like, no law enforcement the guy I was staying with, we just went out and did whatever the hell we wanted. Uh, I could carry weapons with me. I didn't have to worry about getting arrested for defending myself. Uh, you know, so uh, I'm hoping that the whole police thing just implodes. And uh, the best thing, the best way to accomplish that would be just to give more of these worthless bitches jobs as police officers. You know, but it's not going to solve the problem because then they'll just end up becoming kind of like meter maids. Uh, and then the federal cops will come in and kick the shit out of you. But, uh, you know, it'll give you a couple year break from the, the constant police presence. So I'm hoping a bunch of police departments really get rolled over this year. That seems to be the where this is all headed is it's just massive federal oversight of this whole thing. Like I, I predict that the FBI field offices across America are going to quintuple the next 10, 15 years. And they're going to take over all major crimes investigations, all sex crime investigations, all organized crime investigations, everything. Like the local PDs and sheriffs aren't going to do anything other than prison transfer and, you know, kind of day-to-day patrols at best. That happened in Baltimore like three years ago. It would well, be easy to do since there. there aren't any such investigations as those. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say the things that Hans mentioned, they don't actually do. So it would be really easy to. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. Like in in L.A. County, the new D.A. and and the city council have made it clear that they are going to slash funding to major crimes and gang enforcement investigation services. 
So if you are part of a criminal racket of any kind, Armenian, Korean, Hispanic, whatever, in L.A., I mean, you know, this is the golden opportunity because the next year or two, in between when the feds probably come in, if they ever do, there's going to be no oversight. You can do whatever the fuck you want, 100%. No one's going to stop you. There was a there was a study that came out that uh, the website Vox reported on that said um, in cities where Black Lives Matter protests occurred, there was a fifteen to twenty percent reduction in police officers' use of lethal force. However, there was also a accompanying one thousand to six thousand more homicides in these same places. <laughs> Dude, there, there is like four or five mass shootouts every problems. week. In yeah. yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, there, there was like after last summer's riots in in the Minneapolis region. I think a few months after, they were doing all these polls, and pretty much every community and every neighborhood, by overwhelming margins, said that they wanted more police presence, not less, and the. <laughs> The city council basically said, you know, like, we're not interested in that. And then I think recently, you know, probably anticipating total chaos from uh, Chauvin getting off or at least not getting the sentence they want. They've they think that they've recently it re-increased the budget for uh, and renegotiated the contract for the Minneapolis Police Department, if I remember correctly. Because there was talk of basically getting rid of the police department entirely and replacing it with social workers and whatever. Yeah, that was a hilarious four-day period. Right. And they were like, oh, well, we said abolish the police. Like, uh, We still need a, a sort of community self-defense, you know, heavily armed contingents to, to make sure that people can get the services that they need they just walked it back so uh, cravenly. I mean, I, I'm a police abolitionist. Uh, I believe there should be, instead of the, uh, the maximum cop situation that we currently have in the U.S., where like every square mile of land has 20 or so different uh, cops, of ver- police departments, police organizations at varying levels of authority, uh, with jurisdiction in urban areas, zero. Well, I mean, even in rural areas, like you add up all the feds and then you add up, you add up the state department, the state police and the, uh, the County Sheriff and, uh, whatever the local, uh, sort of town, uh, cops are that usually, you know, they amble into the countryside as well. It's uh, it's a non-trivial amount, and uh, I think that number should be zero. It'll it'll just get hashed out. It'll be fine. I mean, or you become a, a protector of the book's statements. One of those. Yeah, I, I think that all the currently employed pigs should be forced into mandatory community service under the new state. They should, you know, have to go pick up trash on the highway, and you know, find people's lost pets and stuff like that. And, you know, if, of course, if they neglect their obligations and they should go to forced labor camps. I, I'm reading recently that in Japan, the crime rates are so low and they, they basically scaled out budgets 20 or 30 years ago for, you know, an expected, you know, necessary number of cops and precincts and so forth. And 
the cops basically have nothing to do all day. So they've basically become like, you know, kind of roadside construction crews and they, they, they track down like the occasional missing person or they do community service or they help out at like the old folks home because Japan has a ton of old people that don't do anything. It's, I mean, it's that's kind of small. It's like they just wander around keeping an eye on shit. Right. Like I've got friends who have done tourism in Japan and it's like if you're staying for, you know, a week or so to get the real flavor of some local place, it's like, yeah, you know, after about 24 hours, the cops swing by and are like, hello, like Anderson-san or whatever. Uh, like just uh, just saying hi and uh, make sure you keep your address on file like Kanichiwa or whatever the fuck. Check out the uh, check out the cherry blossoms or whatever they have in rural Japan. You know, it's not necessarily a hostile thing. Like the same experience would be in uh, like China or something like, you know, watch out round eyed devil. But, uh, you know, you can, you can tell it's like they have ample resources and they like things a certain way and they like to keep it that kind of way. And Elizabeth town, Pennsylvania, uh, about a month ago, a retired man who used to work for CSX Railroad and knew the people that ran a freight rail station that had a porch on it, you know, that was a loading dock. He asked the lady that ran the thing if he would be able to, a couple hours a day, just sit there and watch the trains come and go. Because there's been a whole lot of train activity if you're into trains. It's interesting. So he got permission. And two cops from this little Elizabethtown uh, uh, police department came up, hassled him, told him he had to leave. He gave him the piece of paper with the lady's name and phone number on it. They said, no, we're going to take you out of here. They put him in their squad car, one of their squad cars, and they drove him home, leaving his car at the train yard. And then after they did that, they find one of them finally called that phone number and the dispatcher said, yes, that's Mr. So-and-so. He's got permission to sit there on the porch. And then he won't drive him back there so he can pick his car back up. So he's got to get his son to come and do it. So, and the cops were not mean to him and they apologized to him. So it's apparently the type of work they've been detailed to do, even in small town, Pennsylvania, you know, that this is what you do. Uh, so I'm, uh, <laughs> I think we're on our way to just having civic busy bodies. And I think they'll, you'll have a situation if, if you where had like a medical cop, per- If you had like a RoboCop and you programmed it to basically, you know, liquidate all criminal and antisocial elements in society, it would spend a lot of time uh, killing cops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that I'll, the plot of RoboCop, basically? <laughs> or at least I'll, the plot of some of the subsequent films. Like, it's just yeah. anti-cop stuff and, like, rooting out corruption. I don't know, like the Dirty Harry movies went in that direction too. Like when you become the ultimate lawman, like where do you look for your next target? I, I guess yeah. the other cops. I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, Matt, I was Matt at a bar was, with uh, was the one. Yeah, I was at a bar with a fellow and uh, with a retired cop who was his friend. He wasn't my friend. And that cop retired as a homicide detective. He got out of the Northeastern District because he was afraid the other cops were going to do something terrible to him because he wouldn't get involved in any of the criminal rackets. So he managed to uh, land a spot uh, 
with homicide and moved downtown. Yeah. <laughs> and then retired as a homicide detective. And, you know, this guy's like my age. Wasn't wasn't that show Homicide based in Baltimore or am I yes. out to lunch? Yeah. yeah. That was a good show. Yeah, it was by a guy named Simon, same guy that wrote The Wire and okay. The Corner. That makes sense. This actually brings up a good topic. James, what do you think of The Wire 20 years or so after it initially came out? Or I think it's closer to 30 at this point, right? No. I thought it was 10. Oh. No, it came out awesome. 20 years ago at least. Did we talk about this like two years ago? Did we? Yeah, um, I enjoyed it, but I didn't watch the last episode because all the characters I gave a shit about had been killed off or corrupted. Um, but the, uh, the the way, you know, the high-functioning mulatto gang leaders and everything that were really British actors, uh, that was a stretch. I mean, so if you want to know what the real scene was like, they had a they had a lot of people that did a good job with that. So uh, the only thing that would be different about the gang scene in Baltimore than shown on the wire is that you take the two high functioning tall African American alpha males out of the scenario, and you let the knuckleheads run it. Okay, and that's what it's really like. So they just put the I think they put those two characters in there, kind of like as avatars for white viewers. And I think it's an accident that they were like British trained actors and, and then all the people that played like the low level gangbangers were, were most of them were people that they hired in the Baltimore area. My son went to school. My youngest son went to school with one of the kids that played in that, and, you know, so, and then for the, they, they didn't film their last season because the mayor's office would not let them, uh, get an extension. They thought it was giving Baltimore uh, a bad name. It ran from 2002 to 2008. So we we're kind of in the middle there. Yeah. I never seen uh, it actually, but yeah, friends of mine talked about it like it's, ten it's years ago. Terrible that's, that's why. I... In hindsight, I mean, I remember like I think we probably talked about it, but uh, I remember watching it the first time, and uh, I I think I had decided to watch it because I, I saw an article that there was a guy running for office in Iceland. 10 years ago or something like that. And the guy was basically Reddit incarnate. He was a short little pudgy man, which if you've ever been to Iceland means he's, he sticks out pretty, pretty uh, heavily. And uh, he was like a dork with glasses. And he basically said on national television in Iceland that he would refuse to debate anyone who had not watched all four seasons of the wire and I was like, okay, what, like, what, why are shitlibs so fascinated with this, this TV show about Baltimore? Like, I didn't even know anything about Baltimore or the, or the TV show. I just had heard of it. And you watch it, and you're like, okay, this is terrible. Like, this is, it's not interesting. It's, it's kind of boring. It doesn't go anywhere. It portrays the city in a terrible light. It's pretty dour. It's a bunch of like white ethnics and blacks. It, you know, doing nothing. Why are shitlibs so fascinated with it? I I don't know. I feel like we've posed this question before, but we still don't know the answer. It was those two characters, okay? It was I, the two leadership characters. They were like avatars for the white people to feel like they understood something about, like, the black criminal underground. It was those two actors that basically were the vehicle that let these shitty white people feel like, you know, they were they were part of this, like they knew about it. Hmm. I, 
actually liked the, the format of it. I think it was, I, I saw it when it came out and I think that you could do, like we had our own media. I think that kind of format would be a good approach towards the international criminal networks. You know, you have, I don't know, one season, you have different locations, like one season set in the opium fields of Afghanistan, and another season set in Tel Aviv, and one, one in Hollywood, and, you know, one in Wall Street, like, and just, you, you show how all these things work together. I think it, I think it was a well-written show. I think it was deliberately misleading, but I think it was structured in a way that was pretty clever. It, it's one of the few times a, a city has been, like, the, the primary character. In, in any kind of movie or, or film and in, in, in a way that really sticks. I mean, I've never been to Baltimore and I don't know, talking to James over the years and having seen that show, I, I feel as though I got a pretty good impression of Baltimore, but you know, it could be wrong. Yeah. James seems to think it was somewhat accurate though. So there's It was realistic except for those two characters. And those are the two characters that really let, you know, suburban people connect with the story. The people in Baltimore actually liked it. You know, the people that were depicted negatively in Baltimore, they loved it. They felt like they were being accurately depicted. A lot of them were local people, and it was their first acting job. So, James, do you think that Baltimore, look, watching what is happening to America now, Baltimore is the future of many American cities? Yes. 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 I've, I've thought that since... 2014, I think, was when I became convinced of that, and then 2015 confirmed it, and uh, I don't think it was any accident that nothing changed in Baltimore in 2020. The, the, the place was too dangerous for somebody to go in there and park a pallet of bricks and then bust in some Kool-Aid-haired suburban uh, you know, rabble-rousers. It was just too dangerous for that. It had already reached its destination. So uh, I think the rest of the countries uh, want to get to take that trip, too. I think it's a logical destination, too. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the rioting be, being that bad in Baltimore. Well, well, there was nothing. Not, nothing went down. Uh, last year, you actually had a few less murders than you had uh, the year before. Uh, the, rant, the violence that never gets reported stayed the same. It, and a lot of the worst guys in Baltimore were actually hired to go work in New York and fight the NYPD. And I talked to an NYPD cop up there, and he's like, how's it down in Baltimore? And I was like, dude, I, I got one challenge to a fight by this big bentu looks like a light heavyweight Livingston Bramble, which I took as a as a compliment, and not one single group of hood rats tried to rob me in three months. Now, usually that happens every week when I'm walking on foot in this area and I'm an older guy carrying groceries. Uh, none of that happened. He said, well, I know why it's not happening, because we're arresting these assholes up here. All right, they're busting them in. <laughs> so that was one of the things that happened is they were part of the force multiplier that was sent to other places, and they were actually getting paid. Who, who Who's busting them? Do you know specifically? Uh, I don't know who was busting them, but what he told me, he said when he said, I've been fighting on the riot lines. He was on, the, he was on in, formerly an anti-terrorist unit, and then he got put on the riot lines. He said, we're watching these skinny, blonde-haired faggots handing out stacks of 20s, 50s, and $100 bills to these savages that are coming up from Atlanta and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and paying them and actually telling them what brick, what windows to throw their bricks through. He doesn't know how they're getting there because the, these cops up there have basically been set up by their management. 
the BLM and Antifa already knew the new the new rules of engagement every morning. And these the cops are saying, "Why are these guys doing this now? What what's different today?" Then two hours later, their bosses come out and say, "Okay, these are new rules of engagement." Oh, so we can't arrest the guys for what they were just doing. They already knew. So um, the, the NYPD just got thrown under the bus by their own brass. And some of the cops in Brooklyn, they had to go home in twos because groups of four and five people were actually trying to ambush cop cars when they were leaving their 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 designated areas now i do know when i i got into chicago i left pittsburgh the day uh before they moved the miracle mile in chicago when i was heading west last summer and when i got into chicago there were a bunch of cops there then when i got down to the plainfield area to visit one of your listeners uh something that didn't hit the news but everybody in the area knew about and the local police knew about was that some white people had gone to a u-haul facility in chicago and this was the day after the miracle mile got looted they rented all the vans and trucks they pulled them off the lot and then they loaded them up with hood rats they were putting five guys in the back of each one of these vans. Uh, somehow, the local police got word that their mall, this very swank mall, south by southeast of, uh, of Chicago, where these things were all headed. So it's a caravan of uh, you know white people transporting their hood rat allies out to this swank suburban mall. The cops had local, uh, local help in uh, dropping Jersey walls some local construction people that weren't getting any work, dropped Jersey walls around the mall. The 16 cops in the municipality, all on deck, all there, and it was a fake-out, just like it was a fake-out in Baltimore in 2015. Once they got all the cops pinned down somewhere, they went somewhere else. It was just like one on the ball in football. So they went to some suburban cul-de-sacs where they have half-million-dollar homes, which is pretty nice and uh in suburban, you know, Chicago, or in suburban Illinois, you know, more than 30 miles outside of uh, Chicago. And the people just had to leave their houses and let these hood rats loot their houses because the cops were just all pinned down waiting for the hood rats to get there. And none of this made the news. There were no known police reports, but everybody in the area knew about it. And it was even fact-checked on social, social media and taken down. So it got down to just people talking about it on the phone. I, I heard you talk about this story before. Where where was it again? Uh, the location? It's uh, it was about the same latitude as Plainfield, Illinois, but further to the east. And there was a very nice shopping center there. Uh, I forget the name of it. I, the people I was staying with there told me all about it when I was there. It was happening while I was there. It was right after a tornado hit. This one road I used to go out and walk on every day. Every tree on this road, it's like this really long road that's just a straight line. And every tree on the side of this road was busted down four feet high. Uh, and, and then I found out about that. So that's the type of thing you're never going to hear about. When I was in Utah and... Uh, and Oregon and Washington and uh, the people back east are telling me there's all kinds of forest fires because of global warming. Well, the people I'm staying with uh, out west are telling me, well, this is arson. People are getting called all the time, setting these fires, and the cops won't even hold them. 
you know, so the news just doesn't get out. The, the real news of what's really going on stays local, like it did with the Baltimore riots. Nobody knows what happened during the Baltimore riots. That was just a shit show that actually got edited into three different things over three years, and it never was what really happened anyhow. It was just a it, it was just a media circus so that all the fentanyl could get rooted out of all the pharmacies in Baltimore. You know, and it was and it was planned. So, uh, you know, this other stuff is planned. The uh, it looks like the people got bust in the cities regionally. So New York was getting hit by people just based on the cop that I talked to up there. He was telling me all the cities where they're arresting guys from. And they're not allowed to hold them. See, before the riots broke out in New York, six months before that, he told me we're not allowed to hold people for more than three hours, even if they shot somebody. Even if they shot at us, we're not allowed to hold them for more than three hours. It's a revolving door. So we're just giving them a lunch break. And then they, it's, like, it's not like these guys work eight hours a day. They do a one caper and they're done. You know, so it, New York had already been set up uh, for this. And he got a call from his federal handler uh, from the agency that he had trained on there. And that guy told him, he's like, uh, be real careful with use of force because we'd like to be able to hire you uh, after this whole thing is over. You and your department are about to get thrown under the bus. So just protect yourself and maybe we'll be able to pick you up for work when this all washes out. So there's a lot of subtext there. And um, that was, you know, that guy was going through that shit for 10 months in New York. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they got to see BLM and Antifa get in a fight, which was fun. Uh, and they actually got reprimanded for laughing at Antifa when they were getting their ass kicked by BLM. You know, so they had to actually, they weren't even allowed to watch their enemies fight and cheer one side on. <laughs> they were being so tightly supervised by their cooked out uh, management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- this is by this is by design, and same thing happened in Baltimore. They were already undercut by the DOJ. The investigators were already yeah. headed in. Well, Hans uh, was mentioning the the militarization uh, may may be part of what the plan is. Uh, I don't know if we. I could... think it's a hundred percent. I think it's a hundred percent the plan. Yeah. I think that the the. the... I, I do this, too. This, I'm just trying to you know make of... the case here for uh, skeptical people. Yeah, I mean, you can find articles going back ten years talking about the militarization of the of the U.S. police uh, or the police departments across. The I, US. I should add federalization as well, not just militarization. Yeah, well, the the federalization is is separate. When we're talking about militarization. That's its own issue, and that the militarization um, comes about in several ways. One of the primary ways in which this has come about has been the integration of anti-terrorism task force training through private military corporations, foreign intelligence services, and domestic intelligence services to uh, mid large, mid, and even small-sized metro areas, as well as large towns across the United States. I think um, E. Michael Jones uh, has has gone has gone on multiple times about the uh, foreign trainers brought in to help train and run at one point the South Bend Police Department in in Indiana. Now, South Bend is a college town. So I think it's the fourth largest city or town in in Indiana. It doesn't even have that many people. It's tiny. 
And the crime rate is pretty negligible. It does have a kind of unsavory black element, but it's not that bad. But for no apparent reason at all, uh, an Israeli and a man from Tajikistan, if I remember correctly, who might also have just been a Jew, um, th that's something people often don't talk about. There is an element of Jews from Tajikistan that uh, pretend to be Tajik. But any, at any level, um, these two people were brought in to help train the South Bend Police Department in matters of anti-terrorism. And that's one of the elements of militarization. Number two it are you know sort of federal-style procurement contracts with equipment manufacturers, arms manufacturers, weapons manufacturers, body armor manufacturers, all, you know, material science divisions of major corporations that major metro areas and even small metro areas have through their uh, state budget. And so you have random one-off stories of towns in the middle of nowhere, Colorado, with 9,000 people getting a fucking MRAP and body armor and, you know, M1 carbines. And, and it's just it's just sort of out of control. Now, I don't really know why exactly this has happened. I think that it really got going after 9-11. But you can argue that it's kind of been going this direction since maybe the 70s. When was the last time we sort of saw this uh, rapid chaos spread out throughout America. And as we know from that time, uh, the majority of the people involved in organizing, plotting, and carrying out those riots and those the, that, that chaos were children of the elite of the day. Many of them were the children of military officers, for example, or they were children of powerful lawyers or government officials or just sort of random rich kids. Um, so I, I think that the militarization is its own thing. The federalization, that hasn't happened as much yet. The federalization is, I think, really what they want to do. And it's going to be the one-two punch to um, local America and normal America once you have you know, federal goon squads rolling in who have – the infrastructure already in place after 20 years of militarization to every town across America. I honestly think that's the shot. I, I think one the, of the, the militarization came first to yeah. get the infrastructure in place. And then the feds will come in later and use the infrastructure that's there. I, th I think one of the reasons it uh, may be happening is because if you are not part of that local community, you are less, um, less likely to be worried about what people think of you. And I think there's going to be more masking of these guys. Uh, they're going to basically be treating the uh, American public as the American empire does abroad uh, in that they're... Well, I think it's battlefield America. You know, it, it, it's... The irony is that we've come full circle to the beginning of the war on terror when they very explicitly told the country that the world is the battlefield... America is a battlefield. Everywhere is a battlefield. And I don't think that they were they were lying. They were telling you the truth. They just needed time to spin up that infrastructure. It took them about 20 years, give or take, to get the infrastructure in place. And now you can see them slowly unfolding the, the wider strategy, which is federalization, utilizing existing military structures. I mean, the, the shitty thing that they've been doing 
is they've been clearly testing and stress testing the their capability of the National Guard. Now, thankfully for us, the National Guard has proven to be retarded uh, for the most part. These people are fat and stupid and you know genetic waste, but they are definitely testing them for something. They're you know they try to deploy them multiple times in Minnesota. They're trying to deploy them to Washington D.C. I think that that's part of the strategy well, is to figure out the, the response time for how do you get how quickly can you get the National Guard from one place to another. I think the I disagree with a lot of the premise of this. Uh, overwhelmingly, you've seen the National Guard being deployed as just meat shields, essentially, uh, literally just stand there. You, no weapon, no mission, just stand there in case uh, somebody tries to get through, like be uh, the raw mass that prevents them from getting through. Uh, a lot of the National Guard units are not particularly equipped or trained or motivated, frankly, uh, for anything more than please stand in this location and uh, try not to let anyone through. And I don't think that the feds have such an interest. Like if you add up all of the state and local uh, police departments and you figure out what they actually do on a day-to-day basis, like find some random uh, small town. Like if you're in too big of an area, just like find the closest area to you where you can get the police blotter and just peruse it for like a week and see what these guys do on a day-to-day basis. And it's overwhelmingly stuff that the feds have no real interest in and they have no real interest in the personnel overhead that comes with that. Because, of course, we've seen in a lot of contexts including uh, the military and including foreign countries, that infiltration and control work both ways. And as soon as you start trying to ingest large amounts of new personnel, uh, that can be very uh, dangerous or at least have uh, fraught consequences for the uh, coherency of your organization. Now, what we have seen... uh, for the past year and a half or so is that the federal goon squads, particularly uh, the U S marshals who have always um, basically operated completely out of control uh, in terms of not wearing insignia, just pointing guns at random people and now operating as just outright death squads or snatch squads. Uh, That sort of operation seems to be, much more common and I would you know I would certainly assume that it would be more common uh, as it would go forward but that's sort of within the institutional umbrella of the existing organization you can decide that you're going to hire like a thousand more marshals so that you can have ten times the number of goon squads or whatever uh, but ingesting like the Peoria police department so that you can have feds dealing with like DUIs and expired car registrations and cats stuck in trees and shit is uh, probably not going to happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think that the feds are, are going to come in and take over the big picture stuff. Yeah. Day to day big picture stuff. I, I don't I think that they're perfectly happy to allow the muni governments to continue to do 
day-to-day operations because it gives people the false sense of yeah exactly there's local police here like it's still sheriff ralph you know like and how they've been doing that has been consent decrees right uh, ever since the uh the 80s really uh where you will have some uh this often it gets a lot easier if you have a compliant or friendly local uh, government that's willing to take a dive this is like down to a science now so the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division or someone will sue like Peoria PD and be like, you're racist. And the Peoria PD will be like, ah, shucks, you caught us. We're super racist. As part of the settlement, we'd like to agree to federal uh, oversight monitored by the DOJ Civil Rights Division enforced through some federal magistrate. And then like some of these consent decrees are essentially perpetual uh some of them literally have been for like 40 50 years it's a lot more uh outrageous in the case of like what used to be the uh the federal preclearance for like election related stuff that finally got invalidated by the supreme court a couple of years ago who gets money for this money for what well who who, like profits from the the yeah, I mean, who, who's who's getting greased in this exchange? I would assume that there is some amount of greasing going on on the quote-unquote NGO side. Like, you can speculate on the motivations of the people involved, but a lot of it is obviously routed through uh, these sorts of organizations that identify uh, identify targets and try to do, like, freelance uh, case construction. Of like, well, I mean, you'll you'll see like ProPublica or some shit will be like, mm, Peoria, Illinois, you've got, you know, young Daytuan was like ruthlessly dragged out of his car and et cetera. And this is part of a pattern and they'll run this story. The DOJ uh, will jump on it. There will be a suit, a settlement, a consent decree, et cetera. So it's part of that ecosystem, and everybody inside of this ecosystem gets paid. I don't know like what the kind of capitalistic payoff is, but that's the pattern of behavior. Like, what was the profit in just like destroying the like destroying Birmingham or Detroit or any of the, these other places? Well, I, I want one of the theories is some of this is being used as the classic blockbusting tactic to drop real estate prices to the point where investors can purchase things up on us at a song and then regentrify the area over the course of uh several or 10 years or so and uh yeah i mean it it gels with this this story that like you know a quarter of uh current home sales are driven by private equity i mean like you can sort of model America as like all American politics as one giant real estate scheme, even yeah. Back if, if you include immigration founding. and all that like, stuff, like back Absolutely. to fourteen ninety two. Frankly, yeah, uh, sure. Like it's not that much of a stretch to just link everything back to okay, who controls this parcel of land? Uh, I mean, it's plausible. It kind of seems like a at a level of removal that's unsatisfying, I guess. Like, how much money flow really is there between 
the private equity trying to set up like single family home REITs, real estate investment trusts in uh, Peoria versus like the people who are funding ProPublica to try to like laser identify targets. I mean, it, it it's not impossible that it's, it is happening and like maybe it is just the same group of people. I don't know what would unite these, this group of people and, and the sort of hobby of theirs or, you know, where they would even meet or what day of the week they would meet <laughs> on. It just seems like it's kind of, you know, compared to some of the other chicanery going on where it's like, oh, the Federal Reserve is literally writing checks for your shitty municipal bonds at par. Like, that's a direct payoff. And that happens. And that's an easy thing to do. Like, literally people run BlackRock and they're advising the Federal Reserve on, like, what shit to buy. And that makes people money very directly. So if you've got that as an avenue available to you, it just seems like it's a level of removal too extrapolated to be like, ha ha ha, I have a 30 year plan for how I'm going to like make reasonable returns after depreciation in like the Peoria real estate market. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I think, I think a lot of it is, is not a 30 year plan. It's just smash and grab opportunism. Like though it clearly some of it is motivated by taking down, you know, local commercial real estate and whether or not it's to, you know, strip out the current deed holders for strip malls or, or, or whatever, or just run like local businesses out of town and replace them with franchises and national chains. If, even if that's not the intention as a result of COVID and the rioting, that's exactly what happened. So I don't know necessarily if it was all that coordinated or if it's just sort of convergent opportunism, but I think of what was definitely spurring on, at least in part, some of the some of the incessant or destructive rioting had to have been, okay, here, what we can do here is we can keep the housing bubble inflated because everyone's going to bail out of these cities. They're going to be more motivated to leave dump their life savings into a you know, slimmer housing supply so the housing market prices don't fall. We have an opportunity to finally you know, drive everyone in the commercial real estate sector who doesn't have enough capital into bankruptcy or just wanting to get out of it for their own safety so we can then kind of you know, rethink these urban zones. And you've seen a lot of that, that dialectic the last few years is rethinking American cities you know, going to the new normal, all that, all that kind of stuff. Then you have, you know, the, the idea of, well, all these local municipal governments have been so adversely impacted by, again, the one-two punch that now they are, as you, as you pointed out, you know, directly reliant on Federal Reserve emergency infusion funds to stave off declaring bankruptcy. Uh, you know, similar to Stockton, California, and some other municipal bankruptcies. So I think that there's an attempt here to centralize and bring cities and commercial real estate and people un- more under their control and to kind of keep the asset price inflation game from ever imploding. I assume that that's just that's just what part of this is. It's just the system is trying to find room for all the excess capital it's created. 
And if you can find ways to inject it pointlessly over and over again into new commercial real estate, then you kind of satisfy at least some of the oversupply of money versus you know low velocity kind of problem we've been looking at. But I don't, I don't think it's like a 30-year plan. I think that they, they've definitely just taken advantage of the situation. I've noticed uh, two things as I traveled back the country to the east, no, three things. One is America gained 30 pounds. I mean, people really got fat. Uh, freight traffic is quadruple what it's been in the memory of any of the people I talked to that work for Amtrak. They've got to give right away to the freight trains, so they can't even predict. You know, the guy can't tell me how long it's going to take to get from Chicago to Pittsburgh because there's so many freight trains they've got to give right away to. And the other thing is, is in intentionally blighted shitholes like Baltimore, there's a lot of construction going on. They're building a lot of empty, shitty buildings in places where people over the past six years have been intentionally run out of town by this, uh, uh, by this activity where the, uh, somehow the gangs and the DOJ cooperate uh, and, uh, and get people to leave uh, the town, and they're building a whole lot of stuff in there. So I, uh, I'm... I'm not surprised. I'm kind of impressed by the economic activity uh, going on there. Baltimore population has been driven below 600,000 significantly after 2015. And they're building a lot of stuff there as if they expect a bunch of low-income people to move in. They're not doing a high-end uh, gentrification. Uh, because uh, except for Canton, all the successfully gentrified neighborhoods in Baltimore are starting to fail. They're starting to have carjackings and murders of affluent white people in the few gentrified zones. The only one that is held is Canton because there are a ring of Latinos around it preventing the blacks to get from getting to the whites. They have their back to the water. And the kind of construction that's going up is shit that looks like it's they look like really cheap hotels that are that are going to fall apart in 20 or 30 years. Uh, they're five to seven stories and they're advertised as, uh, you know, upper middle class or re residential, but all this stuff started to go up right after, uh, Baltimore County. And a lot of it's in Baltimore County, not in Baltimore city. It's in both places, but they started to go up right after Baltimore County lost a lawsuit. Uh, that was, uh, put into play by the NAACP and uh, the Federal Housing Authority to have Baltimore County spend three hundred and some million dollars resettling low-income people into the five best zip codes in Baltimore County from Baltimore City. So who they're building these low-income things for in Baltimore City? I don't know. I'm assuming they're immigrants from overseas is what's slotted to be there. I know that the ones being built in the county are for the African-American instead of being pumped out of Baltimore City to make room for whoever else is supposed to come in, and I don't know who that is. Uh, we've had a lot of Nigerian immigration in Baltimore over the past six or seven years, so I'm guessing West Africa is where they're going to come from. There's an insatiable demand in certain business sectors. I mean, really every business sector for uh, like 110 IQ Nigerian uh, Igbos. Uh, I have. I took a selfie uh, of me and my pith helmet in front of the Nigerian men's Catholic 
Igbo Community Center on Hamilton Avenue. It was formerly called God and Country Christian Church. And it's in a neighborhood that I spent a lot of time in over 30 years. I was going there to visit a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, that's that's definitely going on. And there are uh, there are also other people from the Middle East that are being moved in. Eastern Baltimore County, Dundalk specifically, is the place I lived and worked for a while. Uh, there's a few madrasas that, uh, that have popped up there. And they're very well attended. One of the things that you uh, start to notice and can't unsee, there's a particular style of construction, uh, four over one or five over one, depending on what your state building code allows. You'll see a bottom floor that For is retail. made of uh, like concrete cinder block uh, construction. And then you'll see uh, stick houses going like four or five stories into the air above that. And it turns out this is the cheapest way that you can minimize your uh, amount of construction input uh, and maximize your available uh, uh, floor space. Because if you've got that uh, block uh, bottom construction, it's considered, I guess, as a separate structure from the the flammable and not too durable or well-made sticks that you're putting above that. And so... If you look at uh, a lot of the condos uh, or a lot of the quote-unquote mixed-use stuff that I see popping around the suburbs uh, that I've been through, it all seems to follow that same style of construction. Uh, I really don't have hopes for its uh, durability over the next 30 years, but I guess you'll get what you pay for. That's exactly the construction that I've seen in Baltimore County over the past two years. about 10 of those, and they're about the size of like a residence in. Yeah, that, that's been prevalent throughout most major American mm-hmm. cities for past 10, 15 years, I would say. Yeah, the, things, the, things are, uh, the things went up empty in an area where people were being driven out. So, you know, that's, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happened. See what there's, happens. There's been a lot of articles recently talking about uh, raw material inflation, which is sort of getting out of control. I mean, the lumber inflation is absolutely insane. Steel inflation, oh, it's, heavy it's, metal. Lumber has tripled it since yeah, uh, I mean, the, like the, a year or so the, ago. And the, the, yeah, and the, the supply is just totally dwindled. And everything from you know hand machine tools to steel I-beams out of the Midwest to imported steel to domestic lumber, all of it, it's just exploded in price. And I think that if this trend continues for another year or two, just wait for the absolutely shoddy construction that we're going to see <laughs> across the country to satisfy, you know, the existing population growth, just with the unending hordes of people coming across the border and everyone relocating due to all the externalities we've been talking about. It's going to be like Bangladesh where you just have, you know, like a six-story high-rise randomly collapse and just people just kind of go on about their day while there's people trapped yeah, machine underneath. tools are a real issue yeah like the hobbyist stuff i don't know i like there are different supply chains for the big industrial guys where they they just won't take your phone call if you're 
some guy uh, looking for a specific diameter of uh, end mill or whatever. But the consumer stuff, at least, the supply chains are so incredibly screwed up that it literally has taken months to get certain uh, certain parts, things like uh, specialty vices and fixtures, um, even like you know milling machines, drill presses, lathes, uh, the electronics to make it all work in a reasonable fashion. And that is stuff that you know you tend to kind of buy it once and then it lasts for a reasonable amount of time. So there is some slack built into the system. But I think there's going to be some fairly serious industrial disruptions when you talk about like this machine that represents this particular part uh, is broke. <laughs> like machine broke, can't make the other machine, can't make the other machine. Uh, I could see there being some knock-on effects if that happens in the wrong sector. You're starting to see that in the automotive sector. I don't know how much. Yeah, there's a chip COVID shortage. Fallout versus. Yeah, know, I mean that. GM and Ford both uh, cut production well, because they the, can't get access to semiconductors. And and just one more point: the uh, sort of grand geopolitical uh, concern here is that Taiwan, uh, home of uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, is arguably responsible for 50% or more of all chip production used in most products, at least in the West and add another third in South Korea. Yeah, exactly. Samsung is huge and you'd knock those out with a conflict with China. You're screwed. Yeah. TSMC is supposedly planning on building like a dozen fabs or something ridiculous like that. Uh, multiple billions of dollars considering uh, each fab is like aircraft carrier terms of cost and complexity. Uh, but supposedly they're building an incredible number uh, in the U S who knows if that's actually going to go through, but that's the largest uh, sort of reverse tech transfer, I think, in human history. Uh, it's interesting to hypothesize why, aside from the uh, the political pressure placed by the U.S. government uh, and the uh, the economic incentives of the areas where they're actually placing these plants, I mean, it's kind of a weird uh, bet to try to diversify your country's industrial base outside of your country. Uh, I mean, we had that happen to us, but that wasn't a bet so much as a, a looting operation. And I don't think that the Taiwanese, frankly, are uh, that stupid to let that happen. So what are you guys' thoughts on the motivation there for onshoring uh, some of these critical uh, chip manufacturing capabilities? Yeah, State Department probably forced them to do it. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine any other reason why they would. Uh, they're, they probably said, look, uh, if you guys want aircraft carriers coming over there, you got to do something. But I, I don't know. I, I can't think of any better reason. Economically, it makes no sense. I mean, what American workers are suddenly, you know, genius chip uh, designers? Oh, they, they, can, I mean, they can do it. I mean, like, yeah, a lot of the chip design is the design work, America's yeah, but the production work and most covers, yeah. And I mean, there's plenty of cutting edge chip fabs in the U.S. Uh, it's you know, considering that you have the choice of where to build them, 
and they're not all that labor intensive for the actual production. And you actually, mm-hmm. given how expensive this shit is that you are uh, making, it's like if you have the option to pay somebody 10 times more and like cut your error rate in half, you take that every single time. Sure. Given the price of the chips. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I can totally believe that like it, you know, makes sense in the abstract to build them in the U S but the fact that they're building so many. Well, yeah. And why, and why now? Time. I mean, if that, that, that would have been true five years ago, uh, 10 years ago, uh, if American workers are suddenly, I, mean, I don't think the Taiwanese have gotten so expensive that the, it's just simple labor arbitrage. I, the only difference I see is the politics, which, uh, which has grown more antagonistic and, um, yeah, I don't know. Anybody else got theories here? I think it's, I mean, you know, I was actually talking about this some people earlier today. TSMC is basically a, an accidental creation, oh, not accidental. It is a purposeful creation of uh, Taiwanese industrial espionage, effectively. And the only reason the Taiwanese even have the semiconductor industry that they do is Effectively, uh, in part due to the fact that the United States allowed for that creation to happen and allowed for that dispersal of fab facilities across Asia. Now, I think that the the reality is that the American establishment, if you will, uh, is playing a very cynical game here. I don't think that they actually care necessarily about onshoring any of that. I think that this is mostly just a bargaining chip in some kind of bizarre negotiation with the Chinese. And it's basically an implicit recognition that, you know, well, you can take Taiwan, you can nuke Taipei, you can turn the whole fucking island to ash. We don't care. We'll relocate that entire population of Taiwanese if we have to. We'll relocate all their technology stateside and we'll do it here. Or, you know, you can come to a deal and you can you can leave them alone and you can continue to kind of semi-profit off of them being closer to you and having to rely on your supply chains. I don't really think that the United States establishment is going to take it seriously. I think it's just a bargaining chip. I don't even think that if it actually came down to that, that the Taiwanese and TSMC would be able to make that kind of investment in the United States without some kind of massive... Um, federal government subsidy to do so. So the U.S. taxpayer would effectively be paying to onshore, re-onshore technology that we gave away in the late 80s for no reason. Where, where are they going up? Uh, Arizona? That's where Intel builds a lot of their fabs. I think that, yeah, I mean, I Arizona was, I think, the first state on the list. I had heard that uh, the upper Midwest around the Great Lakes was a possibility. Some places in the South, like Tennessee, were yeah, a possibility. Yeah, IBM used to have a plant up in up upstate New York. I don't know if that's... I mean, you know, part of when you're, when you're looking at that stuff, part of what you're looking for is wide open space, access to uh, clean water, you know, low regulations, low cost of land. Uh, easy for people to get to and from, easy to potentially build new housing around the fabrication facility. So you look at states where that's a reality, and that's part of the South, the upper Midwest, and parts of the Southwest. So I think that's where where they'll be. I mean, you have Micron in in Idaho. Uh, You have some chip production, I think, for very specific 
more research intensive purposes in places like New York and Massachusetts. Um, I had heard that there, there was an idea to maybe reinvest in New England. Um, I don't think that'll ever happen. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the other thing is that as soon as you plunk down a chip fab, it's like a hostage. Right. Like you've already sunk one to ten billion dollars into oh, that they thing. Have, they have several in Portland and Oregon. I forgot they have. At oh least, my god! Didn't, didn't didn't they have one in Portland that Terry Davis was going to try and blow up or something? Oh, Oregon. Jeez. <laughs> And there's always the temptation if you're a uh, local municipality or even a state. It's like, well, we've got this extremely valuable asset. Let's tax the shit out of it, which is the other reason why they like to build them out in the middle of nowhere where they can just bribe or outright dominate the uh, at least the uh, the local guys. You still got to worry about the uh, the state. Of course, the feds just print their own money. But yeah. Like, what is the Arizona state uh, governor going to do to you that you can't uh, you can't recompense him for? I was yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think that part of part of the strategy here, and this this to tie it back to what we were talking about earlier, they're never going to do this sort of stuff in cities, even in a microcosm or even you know sort of localized small fabrication plants. Just because the kind of workers that you require to go into the office every day, they don't want to put up with like feral bantus and you know goofy antifa types running around the street every summer. Um, you know the, the reality is that uh, American cities have, uh, in most states as well, have basically made themselves totally uncompetitive by indulging the whims of crazy people. So you know normal people who don't want to be bothered and just want to be able to safely go to work and build a life with the kind of people you need to attract to work at these kind of facilities. Uh, they, they're not going to want to go to those places. This is part of my theory of like why you would not be able to recreate the magic of the Bay area in today's Bay area. If you had the same dynamics, because no one would want to live there. It's no. totally different no. from from the origins of the Bay Area, you know, tech economy in the 40s and 50s. There are lunatics there. When it was literally like wasp paradise and orange fields. I mean, it's just, it's so radically transformed. Yeah, the parasitic load is just too high. I mean, you look at the, yeah. the San Francisco City Council. They have an illegal immigrant. They have a, a school uh, superintendent or school uh, principal talking about how... Um, you know, Asians need to uh, blame white people for black people attacking them. Uh, you have an Oakland uh, government that's handing out free $500 stipends to uh, people of color. Uh, San Francisco's giving out uh, prenatal care to uh, people of, I think, black. Yeah, it's black and Pacific Islander. I don't know like who lobbied for that, but apparently there's some Samoans or something uh, in San Francisco. <laughs> Uh, they get they get healthcare uh, for prenatal issues, uh, but not any other race. Uh, I, I mean, why would the people who actually work in technology, which are whites and Asians, in their right mind set up shop in a place like that? I mean, it's it's just for the visa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's close. I mean, like SFO is close to Asia, but other than that, you know, it's it's just awful. 
I, I was going to change the subject a little so, bit, uh, but Hank, did you want to follow up? Oh, uh, not really. I mean, everything sucks. Uh, thing, things are, you know, we're, we're at the, the midpoint of the roller coaster. It starts to get fast. You see that curve coming up. You don't really know what's behind it. But we've talked for uh, for a while about uh, how crappy things are. Let's uh, let's let's have the uh, the the clear pills here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's no color. What's the uh, what's what's the thing? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the not so colored pill. Uh, what uh, <laughs> what do we what do we have to pull ourselves uh, out of this nosedive with? What do okay. we have to look forward to? We don't have to solve. We don't have to complete the system here. But we've hang, talked hang, 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 hang. You, you know what we have. You know what we have. So we have the myth of the blood. <laughs> under the banner of the sun we have That's human, we have. human That's capital it. that is all um, we have left my friend i want to talk about infrastructure the democrats are now <laughs> oh forcing God. through the uh the house and the senate no a rapid clip no this is uh, bridges and tunnels and everything donald trump talked we know about things but are rough. couldn't do it because we he know like shaniqua is infrastructure now <laughs> like was hey, the MTA like, does a great I, job. Was, no, Shaniqua is not infrastructure. The cat lady that helps her do the foam correctly—that's infrastructure. My my favorite new my favorite new term is is the care infrastructure, which is basically like public school teachers unions. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! This really the the public sector uh, the public sector bloats over the past uh like six months has just been did you see the okay so for for all of our listeners out there by the way i think some people on the show have seen this but there was the the uh the white house economic council spokesman some bitch came out and said well we know that you know physical things like bridges. whenever somebody says we know yeah that's the we know physical things like bridges and roads that really appeals to blue-collar white men. But we also need to talk about things like the caring economy and the caring infrastructure and health care and public housing. And it was at that point <laughs> I realized, like, yeah, building actual things is, is more of a boy's thing. You know, like, we don't, we don't actually want to build anything as part of the infrastructure package. They, and they then said you the have same thing the, uh, you have the gay mayor from from Indiana oh, going okay, out okay. and he's like, you know, there's a lot of institutionalized racism in America's highways. And he starts talking about I-95 and like apparently, according to what the freeways Ig- races. Igbo, yeah, Igbo legend, I-95, you know, bla- blasted through some ancient African neighborhood or whatever in some city. And thus, we need to talk about actually deconstructing the highway. So as part of the infrastructure package, we're actually going to get I agree that I-95 should have nuclear weapons deployed along its length. <laughs> you know, the band- We should blast that sucker to smithereens. Uh, the care economy and the construction economy. <laughs> <laughs> The Bantu expansion. One grassy no median from Maine to Key West. Yeah. So I mean, I, I don't know. If that's to be clear pilled about. It's wasn't that be- wasn't it Hunter S. Thompson? Did he have a plat? Like right. Hunter S. Thompson ran for mayor of Denver, I think it was, 
And I think one of his platform proposals was to get rid of all the fucking roads and like <laughs> just have like nice grassy patches. So that, like, so that like wheel, yeah. what Edward Abbey, I believe, called wheelchair tourists couldn't get there. And I think that's good. I think the problem in America is that you have all these means by which people who don't belong in places can get there. So if only there was a way to prevent that from happening, we would probably be better off. Okay, my internet connection is bad enough that I can only understand like maybe half of what people are saying. So I don't know if you guys can hear this, but uh, I'll let this be my my final. I tried so hard. I tried so hard to throw the white pill, take the white powder, package it in the white pill and cast it into the ether here. This will be my last shot. I have never seen people so disillusioned and with such a lack of buy-in to sort of the 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 consensus ideology it's like brezhnev levels of lack of buy-in literally everybody even the true believers are just sort of going through the motions so i i don't see it as particularly sustainable and i look with glee every time that uh somebody Somebody realizes that, oh, yeah, the, the new big cool thing that NPR told me to be excited about, it's, it's just not going to happen. I don't know how many of those uh, disappointments people can uh, sustain and still be willing to go to bat for these decrepit people. Well, moving on. James, there. what do you think? How much, <laughs> how much can, people, uh, can people be shut out of the system before they, I don't know, what are they supposed to do exactly? But what, oh, where does that where I mean, does it lead? Nothing to? would be sufficient, honestly. Yeah, there was. Uh, I lived for three months with a guy who worked on the two biggest construction sites in Seattle, and he's been a carpenter for like forty years. He spends all of his time taking horror show pictures of all these safety violations. He's no longer building anything but safety devices and uh, ladders to replace the ladders that the African-American laborers have stolen for their own home improvement businesses. The uh, safety officers are proliferating and they are all male to female trannies. All of the iron workers are from Nigeria. Uh, the carpenters under him are a mix of guys from Iraq, Syria, and Mexico, except for the Japanese female to male training, they're having a hard time even finishing these buildings, and they're they're having ridiculous overruns. Uh, so I think the caring economy and the building economy is running into each other, and uh, uh, we'll see what happens. But I think that I uh, I think that Americans are just going to keep swallowing it. Uh, a couple, maybe three or four years from now, you'll probably have over 50% of remaining white males volunteering to perform oral sex on African-American men. So if they can check off, I'm a homo on their card, and I'm not a racist on their card, and then the African-American guy is going to actually be able to build a government for this. I actually think we're going to that point, and the medical system, I think, is going in the process of being deputized, that you're going to see 
five years from now, you're going to see medical warrants being sworn out and they'll be enforced by, uh, I don't know, feds or contractors or something like that, where you actually see doctors and nurses and HMO managers uh, uh swearing out warrants. Uh, I, I think that's where we're headed. I, my, my, my opinion of the American meat puppet and his uh, metropolis uh, can get lower. I mean, it's, uh, it's, very, it's very low already. I think that there's been a crucial, I, I like it, okay, because as an aging guy, uh, you know, I, uh, I feel more vital in comparison to the millennials I'm running into. But uh, it's, it's just very interesting and fascinating to me. And the uh, it, having the care economy just crash the building economy is the only thing that's going to be able to save uh, rural places that like, all these wheelchair assholes haven't gotten to yet. So uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, I think that uh, this, thing, this machine is going to take a while to, to wreck. And I think when it's wrecked, that'll be a good thing. That's a white pill for me. Okay, I just I hope I didn't get anybody down, but uh, <laughs> I'm serious about the homo thing, man. Yeah, you know I really think we're heading there. You know this is becoming a really gay country. I can't believe I was at a there's a place called Green Dragon in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. It's a redneck area. I went there with a friend of mine ten days ago. It was a sunny, windy, early April day. It was like the second day of April. It's mostly outside. There was about 2,000 people there. We were the only people not masking up outside. It looked like a feedlot of bipedal cows, pairs of 350-pound breeders that are fortunately not going to be able to have a second child or waddling by us with their offspring, and they're terrified of us and we're like you know i'm a little runty old guy and this is a very kind guy that i'm with and just because we don't have masks on these people are terrified of us and this was in pennsylvania rural pennsylvania you're talking about halfway between lancaster and reading and uh it's, but on the good side, the Amish and the Mennonites are now providing their own security. They have their own security service, and they have their own intelligence service. So I had some interesting experiences on the trains with them. Train traffic, is, like the people on the trains, they're like 10% of normal, which is great. The Amish and the Mennonites have doubled their, their movement on the train. Now they're traveling like 24 of them at a time. And... They've uh, uh, at the Chicago train station. They obviously they no longer are going to depend on the English to protect them from the Africans. So they actually have a teenage boy that walks everybody to the bathroom, and his father runs the seating area like it's a wagon train logger. And he tells all the older people where to stack their luggage. And he didn't like me. He went over and asked the sharpest old guy about me, and I overheard the old guy saying, oh, the man with the eye patch, he's been taking the train between Philadelphia and Salt Lake City for the past two years. Oh, wow. Because the guy was wondering if he was going to have to bounce me out of the lounge. 
Holy okay. shit. So, I mean, he was like manning up. We were eye-fucking each other. And he had his 15-year-old son there with him. So you've got like a 35-year-old dude that's got a 15-year-old son. And it's not like some normal American that by the time his son's in puberty, he's 60 years old. And they can't work as a team. I was like, wow, they got five generations in this lounge and they're running it. You know, so I was really impressed with what the Amish and Mennonites were doing it. We're doing particularly after my conversation with Mr. Schwartz this time last year when he was talking to me on the train about how they were being persecuted in a lot of ways. So they're making adjustments and they're a real community. So I think most white Americans should just go be the sterile sex puppets of like Bantu warlords and let these Amish and Mennonite people and the Mormons breed and have kids. You know, and it sort itself out because most of these shitty people we have, like all these weirdos uh, making sure the buildings aren't getting built in uh, Seattle, they're not breeding. They're not reproducing. They're just getting their dicks cut off and bossing rednecks around on the job site. You know, but the redneck I stay and he goes to a church that actually stayed open during the whole pandemic. I mean, basically, I got to break the law every Sunday when I was out there. You know, so I've seen a lot of good things going on, uh, you know, but not with these shitty suburban people. I just, uh, you know, my opinion of like your middle class suburban white person is uh, it's just somebody that's waiting to suck a dick. You know, so I'm not uh, I don't care about them. I'd rather see the rural white people and the remaining urban white trash reproduce, you know, because they'll outperform uh you know, everything the U.S. government can do to try to grow the African-American population has not been successful. These fuckers kill each other at such a high rate, it just doesn't work, even when you pay them to have kids. You know, so uh, I think demographically, it should sort out okay that you'll have a really vital European-American, uh, you know, like uh, a couple of different communities of them down the line, maybe 20 years from now. But it's not going to be the assholes that watch CNN or Fox. They're just all going to, you know, ride their John Deere lawnmower into the ground and eventually end up intubated in an old age home, you know, while some obese black woman is smacking them. So, I, you know, I'm not worried about those people. So uh, I feel pretty good about the Amish and the Mennonites. After this last what, what does Amish security look like? Because they don't carry firearms, as far as I know. Well, it's true. It's, well, that's that's right there. The whole idea that you got to have a firearm to stop violence. No, I, as an example, I, I, right, I agree with right. you. So, just, so they're just working it the way I did it. When I had to protect a thousand faggots against thirty gangbangers who were armed with an assortment of weapons, I did it without a weapon. And that's what these guys were doing. And actually, people think these guys never engaged in violence. But I actually trained with a couple of dudes. Uh, the one guy, Dan, had 710 wrestling matches and 25 boxing matches. He bench-pressed 500 pounds for reps. He was faster than I was. Him and his meathead proto-MMA guys used to go to the country music jamboree in Ohio, and they would get drunk and they would brawl. Well, the Amish kids and the Mennonite kids would go out for their 16-year-old summer to see if they want to remain part of the community. And one year they got in a fight with Dan and his friends. And, of course, the Amish kids got their asses kicked. But they do physical work. So every year for the next 20 years, these scrawny Amish 16-year-olds would show up looking for these meatheads from Pittsburgh. 
So Dan and his friends started cutting their hair in mohawks so these kids could find them. So it got to the point where he was 35 and he was still beating the shit out of 16-year-old Amish guys that would actually come up to him, insist on fighting him, and then he'd knock the kid over and he'd pick him up and shake his hand. So I was wondering if maybe this guy that was like 5'10", 190 pounds, 35 years old, and was just looking me right in the eye and daring me to defy him, I was wondering if maybe he was one of the guys that Dan beat the shit out of 20 years ago. You know, so I, I felt really good about it. And what they were worried about, what, they didn't like me because I typed like a Negro, okay? But their security was set up to ward off the Negroes at the Chicago train station because the dangerous people in and around the train station are all lone black men. And I have my own way of dealing with them, but these guys dealt with them the way I did when I ran security for my son's card tournaments like 10 years ago. And you just post up. So what he does is he tells all the Amish people in the lounge to pile their luggage in the middle of the room. Okay, he stands over it. He greets everybody that comes in, everybody that goes out to use the bathroom. He sends his son. Okay, to walk out to the head of the bathroom where he still has eye contact with his son. If his son thinks something is going wrong, then the father is going to be right out there. So when I went to the bathroom the third time. I knew it would creep this guy out. He followed me out there. So his son wasn't out there alone with me. And that's when he asked the older guy, who's basically in charge of the intelligence service, that's when he asked that guy about me, what I was. So you had the sharpest 60-year-old guy that wasn't fat yet. He was set up so that he could see everybody in the room, and he could see outside of the entrance to the security booth where people came in off of the front street in Chicago. The teenage boy is set up in front of the bathroom, uh, where people come and go to uh, the gates and his father can make eye contact with the old guy who can see the security counter and the main entrance and his son who was watching the bathroom. So all you need is three males. The, the younger one putting him out there where he has to move quick is the best play. The strong guy in his prime is is in the angle of the axis and the guy that's basically the intelligence guy who but isn't outranking uh you know the guy in his prime who's the guy that's going to have to physically do something uh he's there to advise him so you got three generations right there now this wasn't father son granddad genetically the the older guy was from a different family OK, uh, I mean, I was calling this guy Samwise Gamgee, the, the, the guy that was I fucking me. The other guy was like Gandalf. You know, that was like a different family line. You know, so all they did is the men organized to make sure that the noncombatants were the, the women and the children were with the old men. And then the teenage guys were on the lookout. And then you had the smartest older guy coordinating the intelligence and gathering it and disseminating it. And then you've got one of the four prime men actually there on the point. There were three other young married men he could have called on. So he had his teenage lookout, and then he had three other guys like him. He had a squad of four. Okay, so no lone black guy, even if he's George Floyd, is going to be able to do anything to these people when you got these four guys that had bailed hell all their life. 
Okay, this guy would have kicked the shit out of me, even if he didn't know how to fight. He was easily three times as strong as me just by his build. Okay, so all he needs is a strong guy that can take a beating that's not afraid to get hurt to just gum up shit and nothing's going to happen. You know, so like the worst use of force you're ever going to see is on the part of police, like that disaster where the 300-pound black dude that almost got shot by the lesbian bitch couldn't hold this 120-pound guy, okay, because the, the police tactics, all it revolves around control by converging at four-to-one odds, okay, where if you're a bouncer or if you're an unarmed security guy, I used to use a door plug. I had a big fat fucker that wasn't too smart that I would put in the doorway and I would roam around the outside. So if anybody was causing any trouble, I could drive them to Corey, who weighed 400 pounds. He can't hurt anybody, but if he grabs you, you're done. Okay, so depending on how many guys you have and what your fitness level is, it, you know, two, three, four unarmed men can secure 20, 30 non-combatants, even when you're surrounded by a bunch of savages. And, you know, so I, I just thought it was great. And they knew what they were doing. I don't know who they consulted with. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I'll be looking forward to talking to a couple of them when I start heading west again uh, this summer, because uh, they, they really did a good job. And the one guy uh, immediately needed to find out what I was about because I didn't fit any of the templates. I wasn't one of the stale uh, couple of business travelers. And the other thing is, is everybody self-segregates on the trains now. All the blacks just go with each other, even if they don't know each other. They don't socialize, but they sit together. And then, you know, the atomized white people will just sit by themselves somewhere, and then the Amish people all pack up, and the Latino people pack up. You know, so you can see who's going extinct. You know, it's these 35 to 45-year-old uh, white people alone on their laptop. They're, they're going extinct, and we don't need them anyhow. So I just thought it was a good thing. So it was a, it, the, the guy basically ran a clinic on how you provide unarmed protection for unarmed people. And if he's got to get stabbed or shot, well, then he's the only casualty. He's still protected everybody else. The suburban white person, their idea of providing security is like the police. Zero losses, nobody gets hurt, everybody goes home. The real way you provide security is you get an expendable male that's already reproduced, who's still strong as shit and can take a beating, and then you put him in the way. You know, which is what this guy was doing. This is a guy that's going to get stabbed or, or he's going to get shot. And he's already got a couple of sons and a daughter. You know, so, um, yeah, I, I, I felt really good about it after, uh, after I went through that. You know, so it was, uh, it, it was, it was a good experience. And are, I learned a lot from the Amtrak people. Are the Amish uh, they're actually, they're actually making masks. While this is all going on, the women so have a sewing circle okay. and they're customizing masks. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is the TSA, uh, they're more, Amtrak's more under TSA than they were. And when I looked at my train ticket, apparently I was the only one that read the fine print. Uh, the feds outlawed most kinds of masks. It's got to look like a medical mask. But the one third of the people that showed up showed up with bandanas and gaiters and shields. And they're technically against the law on any federal property. But the Amtrak people 
uh, had to enforce the mask mandate. And one hour out of every eight hours on the train was mask mandate announcements, including a threat to drop us off and grants uh, pass in Oregon. If we got caught without a mask on, we were told that when we took a sip of our soda, before we swallowed it, we had to put the mask back on. When we took a bite of our sandwich, before we began chewing, we had to put the mask back on. And one of the conductors got on there and uh, started saying, we are not the government. We are not the government. We are employees. You might disagree with the morality of the mask mandate, but we have to enforce it. We are not the government. It was like 20 people with torches and pitchforks were closing in on this guy, and we just wanted to get some sleep. And the way they enforced the mask policies changed with every change of conductors, and it mirrored what was going on as normal in that part of the country at the time. So uh, from Seattle to Los Angeles, it was all panic all the time. Wolf Blitzer were all about to die from the zombie apocalypse. Okay, and they're actually threatening to throw us off the train. But then when we're going from San Francisco to us uh, to Salt Lake City, and they were kind of lax about the, the mask enforcement. Then the hard ass Mormon guys in the Rockies from Salt Lake City to Denver, and we went through a blizzard. They were supposed to get like five feet of snow, and uh, this was the second week of March in, in Denver. Uh, they were real hard asses about the mask. Uh, but they kind of joked around and everything. And the Mexican guys were terrified of the Mormons. Like the Mexican guys had all been to prison. They were all terrified of the Mormons. And they just breathed a sigh of relief when the Mormons got off in Denver. Then Denver to Chicago, that's like the people from San Francisco to Vegas. Well, they were pretty cool. You know, they really didn't care that much about it. If you had it down below your nose, they weren't going to give you a hard time. Uh, and nowhere, and they actually said a couple of times, we don't care what kind of mask you wear, just make sure that your nose and mouth is covered. So they basically punted and they found out that if they had to enforce nose and mouth coverage, then enforcing the medical style mask was a problem because that's the one that doesn't depend on the nose to wear it and it's always down around the chin so they they're already massaging the rules and they're not fully that's already unenforceable mandates and then when we get on the train from chicago to pittsburgh which is going to dc but i'm getting off in pittsburgh because a friend of mine was sick there now uh those conductors did not enforce masks at all but they didn't let you move around the train and they didn't they closed the common area you weren't allowed to go into uh the public car and i found out why when i went forward because i was afraid my miss i missed my stop i went forward to ask one of the conductors when pittsburgh was coming up and they were all sitting in there without their masks on so you had a different style of social distance and mask enforcement in every one of these five regions that you traveled through going across the country. And, you know, so that was fascinating. Uh, you know, so the federal thing pretty much started breaking apart as soon as it was actually applied to hurting actual actual people. You know, so it was it was interesting. And the Amish at first this time last year, they were really resisting the mask thing. But now they're playing along with it, and they're making their own masks. They're, they're not putting money into the English economy to get their masks. And, and when I say Amish, I mean the Mennonites, too. And they, um, 
they're doing a pretty good job of uh, trying to fly under the radar. And they're now one third of the Amtrak clientele. So they actually have, they're basically running their own show within Amtrak. Hmm. They've upped their use of the train as other people have lowered their use of the train. You know, one guy was coming back from Mexico where he got his master's degree and, you know, whatever he was getting his master's degree in. So it was, it was really interesting to see that they were more flexible in how they adapted to things than any of the other subpopulations. The people that are totally the most helpless with the whole thing are the blacks. They're just, they can't survive a week without police and EMT assistance. They just, they're, they're told, when I saw it when I went back to Baltimore and two black women were getting in a fight a block up the street from my youngest son's house and they had to call six cop cars to referee this shit. Okay, when I could have just broke it up in like two seconds and m- made friends with one of them. You know, so the amount of money it takes to, like, promote these as, like, your pet population is really huge. And it's ultimately, it's not going to expand. They're they're moving these people so many places to chase white people out of residential areas so it can be flipped. They, they're leaving empty spaces behind them that they're going to have to jam Muslims and Nigerians into. You know, so it's, yeah, I, I don't see the... Uh, I see probably the big losers in this are going to be the uh, uh, the non-breeding white middle class and the hopelessly breeding, uh, you know, uh, African Americans. I think that those are two populations that are going to diminish and not grow. You know, so uh, I'm I'm liking it. Thoughts on James? What are your predictions regarding this kind of stuff? with respect to the American animal, are, are these things going to be permanent features of the decaying empire? I think look at seasonal population management. Uh, I just don't, I just don't see, uh, I, I just don't see the control uh, organism giving up the use of disease as uh, a, a way to control the population. And anything that you can use that's static to control the mass of the population, like shitty mulatto, obese National Guard people with uh, with no weapons that just like watch these two negresses kill this Middle Eastern guy with his car in D.C. Okay, Uh, that actually helps you pin down a lot of the static population. Like I used to use the fat guy, you know, to pin down a portion of these 30 guys that I was hurting around. So, you know, that plays a role. And the more that you could keep the bulk of your population frozen in place, then something like the U.S. Marshals has more latitude. You know, they're they're going to be able to pick their targets out very easily, who they have to hit. Thoughts on the vaccine passport? Yeah, I I still know people who have not been outside since this time last year yet. They're just going insane. What do you think about the vaccine passport? Uh, You know, when you got 90% of the people begging for it, I'm wondering, (laughs) wondering 
went, because the American animal is so keyed into his like TV feed box. And when I don't watch TV and then I see it on when I go someplace and then I see how brainwashed some of the people are that I'm staying with, yeah. uh, I think you're going to get so much voluntary compliance. I, I stayed with the 80 year old woman who didn't want, but she's got six friends from her childhood and she likes to have lunch with them every week. They wouldn't go to lunch with her until she got the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so there's, I, I think they're going to wait and see how much the social pressure and the gaslighting, what percentage of compliance that's going to get them. And the other thing is, if you, if you don't force it, then you won't play into any conspiracy narratives that might be getting floated out there. And I definitely see for international travel uh, that that's going to go. I'm, I'm wondering if it's going to go for internal U.S. travel. Um, if they decide not to press it, it's still done its job because it will be by process of elimination. You should be able to get a hold of the data on who hasn't gotten vaccinated. Well, that 10 percent of your people, that's the enemy population. Yep. You know, so you could just focus on them. So uh, there's a lot of different ways you can go with how you herd your human livestock. And I don't know what model that they're going to take, but from being with older people and hearing their Zoom calls with their doctors and being with people that have kids that are homeschooling on Zoom and overhearing what the teachers are telling them, like with the, with the white privilege class every day in public schools on Zoom, uh, I think that the – I stayed at a couple places where the, the people – on Zoom with their doctors were being interrogated by the doctor as to whether or not they had any visitors, where did the visitor come from, who was the visitor, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I definitely think that part of your static control model is going to be using the medical establishment to monitor your people, and eventually there'll be some kind of provision for how medical people will help swear out medical warrants. uh, for different things. So if you could, I mean, if you want to wake out a house full of people, all you got to do is put a quarantine sign on it. And just say, these people are quarantined, and you go in to see if they're okay, tie plastic bags around their head, make sure they, they suffocate, and all that. They, they, they all die to this thing. So it's just a lot easier to control big populations of people uh, if you can keep them from moving around. Uh, so I think that's where it's going. However they do it, it's going to be about keeping people from moving around. And if a few people are moving around, well, they're the oddballs. You can, uh, I mean, that's not hard to take care of. It just really wouldn't be very difficult to just have a couple of U.S. Marshals cruise around the country and just whack dirtbags like me. You know, uh, just, you know, people that are relocating because they lost work. Most of the people that are traveling by themselves on trains now, they're actually relocating because they lost their job and then they they lost where they lived. Uh, So, and the homeless camps got a little bit bigger on on the West Coast when I was out there. Uh, The the Negroes in Oakland are weak. You know, I went back in Oakland again and it was just like, I was just... uh, it was just, it was, it's just such a weak place. I know it's supposed to be the badass capital of the West Coast, but I mean, I learned that one of your listeners bought me a hotel room in Oakland. And I go in there and I ran into this Negro in the hallway and it's just him and me. And it, it, it was, he wanted to be his daddy and tell him everything he had to do. 
you know, it, it was just ridiculous. He couldn't survive without a white guy, you know, providing, you know, everything for him. He, he was asking me where his room was. Yeah, it was just incredible. The, 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 Mex- the Mexican dude that was the bartender at the restaurant, I, I ate at and I, I got hammered. I drank $100 worth of, uh, you know, IPA and staggered back to this bar. And actually, from the bar to the hotel, the Waterfront Hotel in Oakland, I was drinking in Jack London Square. I was so drunk, I passed out on the bed. I left my room key on the hallway floor. I found that out when I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And nobody even, I'd have been dead if I'd have done that in Baltimore, right? <laughs> I woke up with somebody stabbing me or shooting me. I was spraying across the bed in my trench coat. You know, so it's, uh, it, it was just really interesting going through all that. Like, the, you know, the uh, California was like paradise to me. It was very nice and non-dangerous. And then by stages, coming back to Pittsburgh, it, it's still, even going through the shithole towns in Ohio, not that bad. Uh, it wasn't really until I got to like Philadelphia and Wilmington and Baltimore that it just got totally icky and disgusting. And then you can see the future of what's going to come to these other places where, where I was coming back from. Cause I spent like, I think I spent seven or eight months out West. So, uh, I think the big thing is just, uh, medical involvement in law enforcement coordination. Yeah, happened in the Soviet Union. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It's just yeah, they they used yeah. There was Solzhenitsyn had a had a book about uh, it's called uh, I want to say First Circle, but I, I can't remember. It's been years. Well, didn't they didn't they lock up people? People were predicting them. You know, mental. Oh, so, uh, so people have been predicting the medicalization of the descent for a while. Uh, yeah, I think it's definitely coming mm-hmm. because yeah, the a lot of the stuff, especially even talking about like arms control, etc. That's all going to be easier accomplished under you know what they call like red flag laws and things like this. Where yeah. I mean, you already have that where it's like yeah. someone has the wrong ideas or somebody doesn't like them, and you know, just get them swatted. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just making these observations. Like, oh, you've been told under doctor's orders to turn your weapons in, and you didn't do it. So, yeah. you know, oh, well, time uh, for a death squad. Two friends of mine are doctors, and my one doctor has had to, uh, yeah, the, uh, they're supposed to ask you questions about firearms. That's been for a while. It really infuriates them. And I'm just mainly making these observations because a lot of the people I know are aging. And they have a lot of involvement because I'm older and they're even older than me. They have a lot of involvement with the medical establishment. And when I'm living with them, I'm kind of part of it. And I'm there. And I'm listening to it and listening to some of the some of the calls that they're going through. And it's it's just it's happening right in front of me. You know, so it's not something I ever had a theory of. It's just it looks like it's happening. James, uh, I think one of the last times we chatted we were talking about um, how the last four years the school shooting phenomena had basically gone extinct as well as the mass shooting phenomena. And in the last three or four months, we've had an explosion in both. I mean, we had a mass shooting by a Muslim Syrian immigrant 
at a grocery store in Colorado that basically vanished from the news almost immediately. And we think uh, in the last two days, we've had three school shootings across the country. So I remember you had a kind of a theory that this stuff is just sort of planned out ahead of time or for whatever reason, it'll, it'll go dormant and then it'll come back to life sort of randomly. What do you, uh, what do you think about that? They're kind of shorthanded. They went from, I think Charlottesville was basically a clinic on how you were going to deal with larger scale dissent. Um, just like Baltimore was a clinic on how you were going to try to refashion these cities uh, in 2015. And uh, they don't have enough manpower to deal with 70 million enemies of the state. Uh, so they're really stretched. And what I really think, the mass shooting thing started in the 65. The FBI classified it in such a way that it could only... Uh, you could. It had to be somebody with a long gun. It had to be something with uh, a military, uh, a firearm that would be regarded as as a combat weapon by military actors, not handguns. It's really impossible to whack five people uh, with a handgun uh, unless you're like a professional target shooter or something like that. Okay, so it was. Uh, from the beginning, I think in 1965, uh, they started rolling, rolling out their program for how they were going to finally try to get rid of the American rifleman once and for all. I, I think there's a class of actor out there that's just in charge of cultivating mentally disturbed people and uh, getting them to just do something senselessly violent. Uh, for some reason, and I think this whole, like the whole lockdown thing, I know people personally who have gone insane. Uh, three people who have lost their mind in the past year. Their 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 mind is mush. They're not the human being I knew before. Okay, because of this lockdown, so that increases the pool of people. Uh, once you drive a certain number of people crazy because they didn't have a wife or a girlfriend and maybe their family's dead and now they're completely alone for half of the year uh, it's going to be even easy to trigger these people to commit an act of violence that can then get most of the meat puppet herd to beg for more policing so i think in the 1970s they had that swat tv show that I used to watch when I was a kid. It was a very heroic thing. Little kids my age couldn't wait to see it because it was almost like an army man show. But it was like bad guys, you know, and the cops are going after them, but these cops are like military guys. And that's exactly 10 years after the, uh, the shooting in 1965 in which the FBI basically classifies this as a specific type of crime that can really only be committed by a Caucasian with a long gun. So uh, I think it's tied. I think the two things are tied in, and it's just a matter of cultivating more mentally ill people that could be used to, uh, you know, uh, to gain more control out of, you know, the more emasculated and domesticated people. Uh, so my 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 general crackpot theory on, uh, you know, where our, uh, where our society is going. But I think it'll be fun slipping through the cracks. And trying to be the guy that uh, doesn't go insane and doesn't have to spend most of your life locked inside. So I think what's cool in this summer is they're taking the foot off the gas. And then in September, you're going to see them put their foot back on the gas again. I watch the people in my family 
get totally brainwashed this time last year to the point where they wouldn't see me. And then they slowly regained their sanity. By August, we actually had a crab feast together. And then by September the 10th, they were all gaslighted and brainwashed again and were totally terrified. And they spent the autumn, the entire winter, and the first month of spring in that same condition. You know, so uh, I think, and three of them lost their minds. So I think, uh, I just think this is just too good a control mechanism to let go of if you're in control. And what, you know, Uncle Ted wrote about was that once a system that becomes self-aware runs into uh, resistance, like the orange man being a, you know, like a wrench in the gearbox there, it's going to gear up until it overcomes that resistance or breaks. And it didn't break. It overcame the resistance. And then it's not going to be able to gear back down because it's geared up. And it might be self-aware and have developed instincts, but it's not this big calculated conspiracy where everybody's cooperating. You know, so you got federal, different federal agencies that hate each other. You know, and even within some federal agencies, there's different factions that hate each other. So I just think that instinctively, the system itself uh, and every federal agent that wants his son to have a job doing what he did, I think instinctively, just, there's an instinct to hold on to power until finally the, the machine breaks.